Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the first Physics World weekly podcast of 2023. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we delve into some of the science behind nuclear waste storage and the remediation of old nuclear facilities. And we also look at what's new on the Physics World website. We've been producing nuclear energy for nearly 70 years, and with a few notable exceptions, nuclear power plants have been safe and reliable sources of energy. In that time, our understanding of how to safely deal with nuclear waste and contaminated sites has grown. To talk about the future of nuclear waste storage and site remediation, I'm joined down the line by Catherine Morris, who is Professor of Environmental Radiochemistry at the UK's University of Manchester. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Great to be here. And so, Catherine, in that 70 years, what have we learned about how to safely store nuclear waste? And and what are the key challenges for the future? Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. I mean, I think I first wanted to start with the the history a little bit. So nuclear power uh, has been contributing in the UK to electricity generation since, since about the 1950s. And it's it's appropriate to say there's been a lot of change from those early types of nuclear reactors, uh, which technically used a uranium uh, metallic fuel for nuclear fission uh, via a fleet of reactors called the advanced gas cool reactors in the UK, and then to the more modern pressurized water reactors, which uh, uh, and they both of those burn uranium dioxide fuel. Uh, so, so there's there's a long history and, and a, a series of uh, nuclear reactors that have uh, uh, kind of progressed through that time. Uh, and the UK has also done uh, things with the nuclear fuel after it's been in the nuclear reactor uh, and has become what's called spent nuclear fuel, which contains uranium, plutonium and fission products. And the UK chose to reprocess that uh, because of the early reactors uh, technically requiring that. Um, but now we're in an era where uh, our reprocessing has, has ceased. Uh, and so we've got a complex range uh, of kind of nuclear facilities and nuclear wastes in the UK. Um, and so at the moment, um, in terms of the learning points, well, you know, significant amount of this old legacy waste from these nuclear facilities still needs processing to form a a stable waste form. Uh, So a couple of examples would be there uh, forming, for example, a waste glass from the fission product waste from reprocessing to solidify that fission product waste into a stable form. And that then gets um, encased in in a steel flask um, and uh, gets stored, okay? And then, you know, in terms of learning how to store those nuclear waste, we've clearly learnt that we need to put the waste in a stable waste form. And then we've got these robust uh, surface stores uh, that, that, that I guess last for tens of decades. Uh, and they are for our higher activity radioactive waste, that vitrified glass, uh, which is heat generating high level waste, but also for some other wastes from our nuclear power uh, uh, program, uh, 
that are called intermediate level waste, slightly lower radioactivity. So, Catherine, you mentioned that um, that there's historical waste that that still needs to be dealt with. Is, is that is that a purely practical issue that that waste is still too too radioactive to, to you know to, to to start dealing with, or is it because um, people like you uh, are are still trying to develop effective ways of of storing? Um, waste or is it a bit of both <laughs> uh, yeah it's it's probably i mean uh, it's probably a bit of a bit of both so so our nuclear legacy in the uk we have um some facilities that are significantly radioactive and are kind of priorities for decommissioning and management and taking those waste materials into a more stable waste form is, is a top priority for the UK. So that's a really challenging task. Um, for the more, uh, what should we say, standard wastes, things like the fission product waste, uh, the vitrification process just takes time and needs to be done at a steady rate in order to achieve uh, a, 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 a waste form that's uh, stable and, and packaged. Uh, and, you know, another example of that would be uh, the cladding or the outside of the spent nuclear fuel uh, that gets um, uh, uh, placed in stainless steel, steel drums and grouted. And, and that just takes time. Now, you asked about innovations in waste packaging. And I think I think we're always looking for innovations in waste packaging, but also we're also we're also need to achieve um, uh, removal of some of our wastes and, and safe storage, uh, and therefore we have to use the best available technique at, at, at the time. So there's a balance in there. And I, I suppose you know someone like myself, I would assume that um, that once this this waste has been made safe, all of it ends up in the same place. I don't know some deep underground depository or something like that is that the case or or do different types of waste go to to different sort of permanent facilities so so yeah it's it's it feels quite complex if you're jumping into this for the first time so we have we have essentially a delineation in 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 radioactive waste and we have the higher activity radioactive waste uh, which is this intermediate and high-level waste. And, and the international consensus is that that material will need to be disposed of in a subsurface, what's called a deep geological disposal facility. At the moment, we don't have one of those in the UK. Uh, so our, work, uh, our higher activity waste is stored in uh, waste stores at Earth's surface. And the idea is that over the next decades, we'll be able to build our deep geological disposal facility for those higher activity wastes and dispose of it in the subsurface over the next decades and beyond. Uh, for the other waste, the not higher activity radioactive waste, so that's called low-level waste and very low-level waste, uh, we dispose of that in um, dedicated landfill at uh, Earth's surface, and that's a disposal. So at the moment, our higher activity waste is stored Wait, awaiting a disposal facility and our lower active uh, waste is um, uh, disposed of at Earth's surface. And Catherine, there's a, a growing number of older nuclear facilities worldwide, many of which have been decommissioned. Um, wh what are the challenges of uh, managing and remediating 
these sites. I mean, I think you've been involved with, uh, or you've looked at Hanford uh, in in the U.S. state of Washington, which is a famous um, facility, as well as uh, a bit closer to home, Sellafield, um, in uh, in the northwest of England. Uh, is it is it a real challenge to uh, to deal with these sites? Um, you know, I, I would assume that um, you know, sort of back in the fifties and sixties, when when a lot of work was done there, maybe people weren't looking to the future, or if they were, they made a few bad decisions. Is is that the case? Is yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that you probably wouldn't choose to start from the place that we're at at the moment. So I, I, I agree with your with the, with your assertion that in the fifties and sixties the focus wasn't necessarily on on the uh, on the waste. Uh, it was rather on the on the production of power, etc. So, yeah, you've mentioned a few sites. I mean, I think generally because the UK was early in nuclear power generation, um, uh, we've got uh, uh, the challenges that we face in managing our sites probably encompass a vast majority of, of the international challenges. So you've talked about Hanford. That has some similarities to Sellafield. Uh, and, you know, there are other sites, Oak Ridge in Tennessee and, uh, and other ones around the world. So so the types of radionuclides that, that are uh, challenges at those sites uh, are often very common uh, across, the, uh, across the, the range of these nuclear facilities, uh, but actually you do need to tailor things. So you talked about Hanford. Well, Hanford is, I believe, about 400 kilometres square uh, and, and, and therefore is quite an extensive site, whereas our Sellafield facility is kind of in the order of four to five kilometres squared and is very dense. And so that that impacts the way that you, you, you think about the, um, uh, about the remediation of approaches so so in terms of remediation there's 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 actually at the moment a lot of physical decommissioning of old buildings and, and infrastructure that contains radioactive waste and that that really needs to happen uh, so for example again I'm most familiar with the UK um, being from Manchester I've, I've spent a lot of my career thinking about Sellafield uh, and at that site at the moment there's a real focus on an area called the Sellafield legacy ponds and silos these are the the most hazardous buildings in the UK um, and um, you know getting the degraded radioactive waste materials in those legacy ponds and silos uh, physically and repackaging them as higher activity radioactive waste uh, to reduce risks on site is a real priority. It's a difficult, steady job, uh, and that's ongoing. Um, you know, and then we've got our old reactor sites in the UK, and and that decommissioning is also lots of demolishing and optimizing waste hierarchies. Simple things like not not putting low level waste into it, the wrong category, and and spending more on the waste disposal. Um, so, you know, there's the physical dismantling. And after that, I think you referred to remediation. So, you know, many sites globally and, and also in the UK have residual radioactively contaminated land. And, and here there's, there's some real thinking to do about what we what we should do uh, with with that uh, with that site um, and what the stakeholder community views are. Uh, as an acceptable kind of endpoint to the site. So, you know, in the UK, we've got a significant forward program of new nuclear builds. Um, and sh so is there an opportunity for some of those old sites to be repurposed? 
and cleaned up to the level that they can receive, for example, new facilities. Uh, and so that 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 whole conversation is is needing to happen. But but the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to get these legacy ponds and silos and uh, more globally higher risk problems in Hanford. The Hanford tanks are considered to be a high risk. Uh, getting those stable and then thinking about that that longer term site remediation and, and end site endpoint uh, reuse, for example. So what you mentioned the Hanford tanks? What uh, what 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 are they? Are they c- quite literally tanks filled with bad stuff that uh, <laughs> that you and your colleagues have to work out what to do about? Sure. So so I I haven't worked directly on the Hanford tanks. What we've done is uh, we've taken some of the technologies that they've applied at Hanford and looked at them in the context of the contaminated land uh, at Sellafield. But yeah, the Hanford tanks contain high level. Uh, radioactive waste and uh, the early tanks were single shelled uh, tanks. Uh, Latterly, they learned to build double shells in order to try and hold things and contain things. Uh, But some of the tanks are leaking uh, in the same way that in in the UK at Sellafield, some of the um, uh, Sellafield legacy ponds and silos uh, uh, sites have leaked and are currently leaking. And I would imagine that um, in in dealing with these issues, there's a lot of chemistry, there's a lot of material science involved. Um, uh, is that who who you tend to work with when you're? I suppose you tend you work with engineers as well, but is that the sort of scientific expertise that's brought to bear on on these problems? Sure. So these challenges are, are interdisciplinary, um, and so you need everything from social scientists to talk talk with and understand uh, things like site end states and and beyond uh, reuse uh, through to uh, chemists like myself uh, who can tell you about radionuclide behavior, environmental mineralogists um, uh, that can tell you about how the radionuclides interact with the subsurface, Uh, clearly engineers to kind of implement change. Uh, So so it's uh, and, and actually one of the things that we do in Manchester uh, that's unique with a colleague of mine, John Lloyd, is is look at, at subsurface microbiology. So you need all the way from kind of microbiology through material science, engineering, environmental mineralogy, uh, a whole host of different disciplines um, to 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 tackle what are significant uh, problems. You know, uh, I, I've, I've mentioned that the Sellafield legacy ponds and silos are the most hazardous buildings in in the UK. And so, Catherine, I want to talk about a, a specific technique that you use, um, X-ray absorption spectroscopy. And you use this to um, to study radioactive materials at the UK's Diamond Light Source, which is uh, a synchrotron uh, in Oxfordshire. Now, now, what does this technique tell you about um, the materials that you're interested in? Yeah, that's that's a really uh, good question, Hamish. So we use diamond light source and have been users for diamond light source the last decade and a little bit more. Uh, and, and what it does, it allows us a flexible technique, X-ray absorption spectroscopy, to look at the what we call the chemical speciation of of the radionuclides that we're interested in. And um, myself and my co-workers at Manchester 
including uh, Sam Shaw, who's an environmental mineralogist, and John Lloyd, uh, I've mentioned as a, a geomicrobiologist. We have a whole host of projects and techniques, uh, projects and systems that we want to understand radionuclide behavior in. So what we can do is take a, a complex material like a sediment or, or a cement uh, under controlled lab conditions, we can react it with a known radionuclide. For example, strontium-90 uh, is relevant to contaminated land, but we use stable strontium to reduce the, the um, uh, uh, hazard of, of the experiments. Or we can react it with something like uh, technetium-99, which is a radioactive uh, isotope relevant in contaminated land, uh, and then take it down to diamond, uh, do our controlled experiment exploring the perturbations and conditions, take it down to dial diamond uh, and use X-ray absorption spectroscopy to probe its chemical speciation. And what that ultimately does is, is it lets us understand the fate of the radionuclide in our experimental system. And to give you an example, for example, uh, we've done a lot of work on technetium-99, which is relatively mobile in a lot of nuclear facility subsurfaces. Uh, and we've used a range of uh, chemical redox reactions and microbiologically induced redox reactions to change the speciation of technetium, to reduce its solubility and to scavenge it down onto sediments and thus remove it in principle from groundwaters. We're, we're doing this in kind of 100 mil bottles. Um, so there's a lot of steps in between that and, and scaling up uh, into like a, a treatment for a, a, a nuclear facility. But nonetheless, Diamond Light Source allows us underpinning information about this chemical speciation uh, of the radionuclide in these in these experimental systems, and as I've alluded to, we use it across a whole host of different projects. And I'm guessing that that there's some specific challenges involved in in preparing radioactive samples, using them at the facility. And um, I understand that Diamond has just um, opened a new active preparation center where I, I, I suppose you you've got all the equipment at hand that you need. Uh, can you describe this uh, active uh, area and, and how you use it? Yeah, so uh, as you can imagine, we're really excited to see this active materials laboratory at Diamond open. Uh, and we've already kind of started to explore how we can benefit from, from the new capability it offers. So uh, you allude to the fact that working with radioactive materials at Diamond Light Source is, is, is going to cause... Um, is going to cause some challenge unless it's handled properly. So we always handle it properly. And what the AML does, the Active Materials Lab does, is allow us to kind of fully um, realise a range of different samples that we can bring in to Diamond Light Source because it has the capability and capacity uh, to do uh, uh, enable analysis of kind of tricky radionuclides that people bring to beam, make sure everything is clean, make sure everything is contained before, before it goes to the um, beam line. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's really important that all stakeholders are assured that the, the packaging, et cetera, the cell that we're using before it goes to analysis is, is appropriate and robust. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that we have worked at Diamond with some of the more challenging radionuclides, so I'm sure... Uh, professor of Environmental Mineralogy and, and myself uh, were involved in a project bringing uh, analysis of uh, plutonium 
design and light source. Um, and uh, I think the AML will allow this kind of significant nuclear legacy and all the challenges that that brings from academic and industrial users, a pathway into diamond that, that will allow access to all, all the uh, beam lines if the safety case says that that's appropriate. Um, and then, you know, actually, we're really excited about being able to do some experiments down in that AML, uh, Active Materials Lab. So a lot of the experiments that we look at show change in radionuclide behavior over minutes to hours. Uh, you know, so it, it, traditionally before the lab opened at Diamond, uh, we'd have to kind of do things and freeze samples and bring them down. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity even for for us to, to do experiments uh, uh, on the beamline in situ, that could be a possibility with radioactive materials. And we, we've pioneered a little bit of that with relatively straightforward radionuclides to work with, like uranium. Uh, and, you know, it could be expanding that envelope. Uh, but even doing the experiment down there and freezing time points down there and, and, and seeing feedback uh, would be really beneficial. And I know um, other groups, uh, for example, colleagues at... Uh, other colleagues in Manchester and Sheffield and Bristol are also getting their thinking caps on about this lab and, and, and how to use it. Uh, and some, some really interesting ideas are bubbling up. So that's, that's really exciting for us. And Catherine, you mentioned that you, um, that you collaborate with microbiologists. Um, what, uh, wh- wh- why is that? Is it because, um, I suppose, microbes get into, uh, into waste and there's microbes in the soil and they, they're producing lots of different compounds and breaking down other compounds and you really have to be aware of those processes is that is, is that why yeah yeah i mean um i think people instantly think that that the, the microbiology will cause problems and that that's not always the case so i think it's i think it's fair to say a lot of our work has been quite fundamental and it's been exploring this radionuclide chemical speciation of fate in, in environmental systems to, to inform and underpin our understanding of their behaviour. Uh, and so you mentioned, I think, that, that the waste will have microbes in them, and, and that's true of surface waste and, 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 and contaminated land and sediments have microbes in them. Um, yeah, so some of the work that we've done has been about um, exploring how we can encourage the microbes to generate conditions that um, scavenge radionuclides onto solids and thus remove them from contaminated land systems. So I've I've spoken to you about technetium. Uh, We've done something with strontium-90 and strontium uh, quite recently where we we have solutions that we add to our our strontium-containing sediment groundwater system in in, in a a bottle or a column Uh, and the microbes um, degrade those solutions and release uh, phases that can precipitate phosphate minerals out and those phosphates can scavenge the the strontium down to solids so there's a beneficial use uh, of 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 geomicrobiology and and uh, actually that that has been applied uh, uh, we spoke earlier about this Hanford nuclear site that has been applied at, at the Hanford nuclear site, and we're just cascading that into understanding it in, in the relevance of of some of the UK sites. Um, so the idea there, um, you know, is it is a bit like making beer or wine. You you put the yeast in, and they they gobble up things, and then they they sink to the bottom. And if if you get it right, your microbe will absorb the the radioactive material, sink to the bottom, and you can siphon off the clean water 
I think it's it's a little bit more subtle than that. So so if you imagine our subsurface with strontium ninety contamination in it, either at Hanford or or a UK site, uh, and 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 what you've got is quite an extensive subsurface, and and so kind of intervening and engineering that subsurface is going to be really difficult. So what what we're trying to do is think of ways to inject solutions into the ground uh, that that um, undergo biological degradation and chemical reaction that will then pull radionuclides out of solution. So not quite with your analogy on the, on the beer, but uh, not, not you know, similar to, but more, more subtle than, should I say. Well, that's fascinating. Thanks. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast uh, and talking about that, Catherine. And uh, good luck to you and your, and your team with uh, using that new facility at Diamond. Yeah, we're very excited. Thank you. There's much more on the Physics World website about the nuclear industry. Last year, I spoke with the physicist and nuclear forensics expert Tom Scott about careers in the industry. He also explained why tracing illicit radioactive materials benefits from a multidisciplinary approach, and he described a new type of battery that runs on nuclear waste. That conversation appears in the 13th of October, 2022 episode of the Physics World Weekly podcast, which you can listen to on the website or on your favorite podcast provider. Just look for the headline, Nuclear Forensics Keeps Tabs on Radioactive Materials. The nuclear industry is a traditional destination for physics graduates, but many students pursue careers that do not have direct links to what they studied at university. Also new on the Physics World website, Veronica Benson, Andrew Mizumori-Hurst, and William Wakeham argue that physics degrees need to be revamped so that physicists can better tackle the countless social, environmental, and economic problems that face humanity. While physicists' unique combination of high-level scientific knowledge, numeracy, and problem-solving skills make them very attractive to employees in some sectors, the trio points out that physicists often fall short on broader translational skills, such as effective communication, teamworking, creativity, and the ability to find cross-disciplinary solutions to complex problems. This could be the result of the narrow focus of traditional physics degrees, particularly in the UK, which are designed to deliver graduates who go on to be researchers or work in physics-related industries. In their article, the trio looks at five challenges facing universities that are trying to make physics degrees more relevant. You can read more on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Building a Physics Degree for the Future, Five Key Questions We Need to Answer. Staying on the topic of a skilled workforce for the UK, the freelance science writer Laura Hiscott has written an article for Physics World that looks at four recommendations made by the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee. This committee has just looked into whether the UK's workforce is sufficiently skilled to achieve the government's ambition of becoming a science and technology superpower by 2030. 
the committee concluded that there is a widespread shortage of STEM skills in the country and that the government's proposed solutions to tackle the shortage are inadequate and piecemeal. To rectify this, the committee recommends that skilled workers from abroad should be encouraged to move to the UK, describing overseas talent as a key part of the solution. You can read more about the recommendations on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, UK must embrace overseas talent to become a science superpower, says report. Elsewhere on the website, columnist Robert Kreese looks at some of the ethical questions that arise when renaming scientific principles that honor physicists who have done bad things. The column has the headline, The Ethical Dilemmas of Renaming Scientific Principles that Honor Fallen Idols. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Catherine Morris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, you can listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester chats with comedian and writer Robin Ince about his relationship with science, something that he felt distanced from as a young adult, but now inspires most of his creative output. That episode is called Robin Ince and the Joy of Popular Science Books, and it also features Physics World editors talking about three books that were reviewed in the December issue of the magazine. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.